Mrs. Gray. It, uh, it's sometimes lonely being up here all by my lonesome. And so, great to have you here. Is she on, uh, Caleb? No? Okay. Thank you. You lied to us, my friend. You lied to us. <laughs> um, this morning we thought we'd start with one of our all-time favorite stories. And if you've been at Hillside any length of time, guaranteed you've heard this one because we've told it many times. Uh, but it's uh, told by John Ortberg. He's a well-known Presbyterian pastor from Southern California. And uh, he tells how he and his wife uh, bought their very first piece of furniture. They actually traded in their Volkswagen uh, Beetle van to buy this sofa, a mauve sofa. Here's how it goes. The man at the furniture store warned them not to get it when he found out they had small children. He says, you don't want a mauve sofa. Get something the color of dirt. But, the naive opti- but with naive optim- optimism of young parenthood, we said, we know how to handle our children. Give us the mauve sofa. From that moment on, everyone knew the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on, breathe on, look at, or even think about the mauve sofa. It was like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. (laughs) Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So Nancy, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it, Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, just six months old. (laughs) Do you see that, children, she asked. That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're gonna stand here until one of you tells me who put that stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. (laughs) (laughs) Laura passionately denied it, and then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew they wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly on the sofa, (laughs) and I wasn't saying anything. (laughs) Now, that exact scenario hasn't happened in the Gray household, but it could have. In fact, our first couch was almost more, almost topi-colored couch. Uh, But in this series, we want to talk about how do we create God-honoring community and healthy community uh, with the people we are close to. It doesn't matter if you are married or single, uh, if you are at the front end of your life or at the back end of your life, relationships are a big part of our lives. And uh, so what we'd like to do this morning is spend the first part of our time considering just why our our relationships, why do they matter so much? And and, and why why do they have such an impact on us? And then why do we bother investing in them and working out our relationships 
And then we're going to spend some time exploring uh, specifically two areas of marriage and parenting. Um, it's kind of funny, when I was young, I, uh, I thought I was, you know, pretty okay when it came to relationships. I thought I had mad relationship skills. This was until I went to university and I got real living roommates. And uh, it was okay at first, but, but after a time, they began to annoy me and I'm convinced I began to annoy them. But I mostly thought, I was convinced actually, that they were the problem, my roommate troubles. And then I got married, and uh, our relationship uh, was smooth sailing for the first year or so. But in, I think it was like the end of year two or year three, uh, cracks began to show. <laughs> Angel began to point out uh, some of my flaws, quite freely, by the way. <laughs> a spiritual gift of hers, I think. And, uh, and these weren't just surface flaws. These were kind of like foundational flaws. You know, what, what I began to learn is that what I, I, I carried into my marriage some really good things from my family of origin. There's no question. But I also brought into my marriage some dysfunctional ways of relationships and relating to one another. And uh, that don't get me wrong, I, I, I have loved being married, and uh, I think we have a good marriage. And we're grateful for it. I, I'm grateful every day. But it's been the most humbling relationship of my life. I've learned how much I need to learn in terms of, of relating in a, in a good and, and healthy and God-honoring way. It, it's kind of funny. Um, the day after Angel and I started going out uh, at university, I, I heard an Aaron Neville and Linda Ronstadt song on the radio. And I, I felt, I was driving my uh, Chevy Impala along the road, and I almost pulled off the road because this song, this line seemed to prophetically speak just to me, where it said, I really didn't know how to love, so I asked for a little help from above, and he sent me down an angel. That was the song. <laughs> and I'm like... Ah. <laughs> for me, being married to Devin has challenged me relationally, too. And then children came along, and it took us to a whole nother level. And then, and then when you think about it, we've been part of the same church for like 24 plus years. We, we've been here at Hillside and, and what was before Hillside. And, it, you know, the tendency in church life and, and in all relationships, I think, marriage, whatever it might be, is there's a honeymoon period where everything is good and everything is right. But, but it seems like, you know, uh, those, those things cool down after a time and, and uh, it gets real. And I think one of the tendencies of, of our culture is when it gets hard, we, we might actually flee, especially when it comes to church, right? We just find a church down the way. Those, those people at that church, they're trouble. And, and so we maybe do that, or maybe we opt out of community altogether. We just begin to live an isolated life. Uh, again, there are going to be relational challenges in any close community, whether it be a husband and a wife, or friends, or a small group, or or people that journey together for a time. Um, this applies to, to relationships in every part of our lives, I think, of it, uh, in our work life, our, our, with our neighbors, uh, and in our families, of course. So why is relationship so important to us? God is a relational being. He lives in community, uh, the Trinity. 
from eternity past to eternity future, God is a community. They live together, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. One God in three. And in Genesis uh, 1, uh, it says, we are made in the image of God. God says, let us make man in our image, he says, for relationships and for community. It's interesting if you read Genesis 1, uh, the creation story, after every day, God says, it was good. What he made was really good. And it's only one time he says something wasn't good. He says, it's not good for man to be alone, a human being to be alone. And, and then when, when you look at the rest of Scripture, this kind of theme uh, of community, of living as a people, not as just a person, gets kind of played out. You have the Ten Commandments, six of which are directed uh, specifically towards our, our ways of relating with one another, like don't kill. That's a good first rule of relationships, people. That's a good starting place if you hadn't thought of that. Um, just leave that with you to meditate on. Um, but, but if you read the first 50 chapters of the Bible, it's, it's interesting to me. What are they? They're stories of not even a people yet. The people of Israel didn't exist yet. They're stories of families, of, of God working in families, and it's also stories of their dysfunctional ways of relating. And then in the New Testament, you go there, and there's just boatloads of instruction of how we're to treat one another and how we're to do it well. There's something like 59 one another statements. For example, it says, love one another, be at peace with one another, build up one another, give preference to one another, value or esteem others as better than yourself. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Serve one another, be devoted to one another, rejoice or weep with one another, admonish one another. And then you've got care for one another bear with or tolerate one another, be kind and forgiving to one another, submit to one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, confess your faults, your sins to one another, accept one another, be truthful with one another. Anyone feel just a little bit challenged by those one another statements? We, we might think we have it together like I did relationally, and then I read these and I go, I, I got some work to do. But all throughout Jesus', Jesus and the apostles' teaching, there, there are these commands to, to treat each other well, to pursue um, healthy relationships, to pursue relational integrity. In James, uh, it says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. And Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. And the greatest, and Jesus talks a lot about love, and the greatest commandment is love God and love your neighbor. And that involves working things out. Uh, he talked again and again, Jesus did, about forgiveness. Forgive as God forgiven you. Uh, that part of it is such a biggie, we are going to tackle that in a deeper way next week. And then Psalm 133.1, uh, often called the unity psalm, it says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. 
and here's the thing, and scripture says this often, just how good it is, how right it is, how healthy it is for us, how, how good it is. Research backs this up. Harvard researcher Robert Putnam uh, was quoted saying this, the single most common finding from a half century's research on life satisfaction, on happiness, from around the world, is that happiness is best predicated or predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. People who have, have good, healthy relationships are generally happier and actually, they're right, even physically healthier. The reality is we're, we're made for this and, and we need one another. As someone once said, and I've, I've quoted it many times here, it seems like the kingdom of God moves at the speed of relationship. So we are made as these profoundly relational beings, but we are also profoundly and deeply broken relationally. Uh, this goes back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. When they sin, sin brought with it division, pride, and shame. You already know family, friendships, relationships, which are designed to bring the greatest joy also brings you the greatest pain. The good news is Jesus came to save us from our sin, but he also came to save us from the effects of sin. So as you follow Jesus, as you press into him, as you listen to him, he will heal you relationally, both with God and with one another. By the way, uh, this is our dream for Hillside. I mean, this is part of it, a, a good core part of it, actually, is that we would mature and grow up in the way we treat one another. Um, churches sometimes don't do this very well. You know, we, we have a lot of great ideas about God, and, and, and those are always meant to translate in how we treat each other. Loving God, if, it, if it's not leading to loving others, um, we're missing the boat. And, and so I want to say this, too. Uh, uh, there's a cost to it. There's a cost to loving each other well. It, it's going to involve all kinds of things. Um, finances, time, uh, you know, energy. But we think it's worth it. It's, it's worth our wholehearted pursuit. When we honor each other, when we honor God, we, and we even honor ourselves, when we invest in, in good relationships. Now, we want to change gears here a little bit. Angel and I have been in a season of change uh, when it's come to relationships. Our, our boys, our two sons, are now grown men. You can see them on the screen there. Uh, it's funny when we post pictures these days, a couple of comments usually is, where's Angel? Because uh, if she's tucked in between, then people wonder, where did she go? Uh, they got, I always say, they got uh, my size and her good looks. And I think that was probably <laughs> good on both counts. Um, the other thing uh, one of uh, our son's friends posted in relationship to this picture actually was like, your dad looks adopted. <laughs> yeah. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, if I seem a little insecure, you know, I'm going to start going to tanning salons in the summer. Um, our seasons have changed. Uh, our boys are now ad adults, and, and they require different things of us. We're, empty we're new empty nesters. We're still learning what that looks like. We're, we're learning that it's like 70% less cost of groceries. I mean, <laughs> seriously. They were home this weekend. They, we, we sent them back uh, this morning, and 
our fridge emptied. Like, <laughs> um, unbelievable. That all said, we still miss them, don't we? Mm. We do. We actually do. miss them terribly. But over the years, we've been reflecting on uh, our marriage uh, and on marriage and, and our parenting. Um, we've led the marriage course, Angel and I, I think we figure seven or eight times. And we've led it not because you guys need it. We lead it because we need it. it we love, have loved the refreshers. Um, but we get asked a lot about family relationships. And so we thought we'd just kind of have a conversation around three areas we've been thinking about or three areas that uh, we get asked a lot about. Uh. The first one is challenging conversation. Um, a while ago, a friend uh, described me as fierce. And I kind of, first when I heard it, I thought it was kind of offensive thing and felt kind of hurt. Uh, I d didn't like being called fierce. But he assured me this was a compliment. As I pondered about that, uh, I thought, yeah, there is a fierceness to how God has made me. Uh, uh, there's a personality test I've just taken, uh, and it sum summarizes me as a challenger. I'm still working on that. I haven't figured all that about myself. But this I do know. I'm fierce about my family. And over the years, I've had lots of challenging conversations with my boys. It's uh, challenging them to be their better self, who God made them to be, not to settle for less. Uh, one of our sons, uh, he has a tendency towards shortcuts. We knew that even in kindergarten. That was one of the comments the kindergarten yeah. teacher he's told very, us. He's very much avoid pain at any cost. That's his sort of mantra for life. I and think. he loves comfort. Uh, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, early... When they were young, I, I would give them these math sheets, you know, for them to do. There was, like, I, they, uh, they, I give them the math sheet. It's multiplication table. They have to figure it out, and they time it. So they were not competing with each other. They were doing it on their own, and they are competing with themselves from yesterday's time to today's time, just, you know. And I didn't correct it. I just wanted them to get better. My son is, this particular son is smarter than uh, what's good for him. And uh, he figured out, okay, my mom doesn't correct it. So he just started filling out any number that came to his mind. <laughs> and uh, just kept on saying, yeah, yeah, timing is going I, good. I remember finding one of these sheets and looking at it and going, it was on either, a <laughs> he looks like, he's really bad at math. Like, no, it's, it's because it was it was in the recycling bin. I, I looked up, and there's 23. And I'm like, 23? There's no multiplication number for 23. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And there was, uh, uh, what was, 79? And I'm like, what? And then I look at it. He has just scribbled numbers everywhere, whatever that came to his mind. <laughs> and uh, so had to have a very hard conversation about that. Um, to challenge him to take, work harder, to take the harder road, to take risks. Uh, one of our other sons, uh, his tendency is to go towards self-absorption. It's all about him, his interest, his things. Um, and so to challenge him, saying, we are a family, we are a team, we work together. 
And, and we've actually seen fruit from those conversations. I mean, they've been repeated conversations, uh, getting to the place where you help your kids. And this is a parenting thing. I, I think that's part of our role as parents is actually learning what is their shadow sort of side. And, and we also want to celebrate their, their light side, the, the strengths that they have. But, but allowing that, that shadow side to go unchecked can be really unhealthy. And, and, and I think, too, just an aside, if Angel was only having hard conversations, I would say it would probably be a really hard household. Um, but she's also very loving and affectionate, and, and they know they know, they know that she's for them. And so those harder com conversations help. I think they happen best in a context of love. At times, uh, with our boys, these challenging conversations go well. But at times, it has gone sideways. Um, I want you to know, God gave me two strong-willed boys. Uh, they are very strong-willed, and I think it was God's sense of humor. Uh, I grew up with two sisters, so I didn't know what it is to have two boys. And then also, how strong-willed they were, and to keep me humble so I could never boast, I did parenting well, because they challenged me on every, every turn. Uh, I have apologized to them when I have overstepped or when I've been harsh with them. I think this is where love gets worked out. I think sometimes we want to avoid hard conversations because we are afraid whether it's going to go wrong or we don't want to make things worse, so we just want to avoid them. I want to challenge you. Don't back out of those hard conversations with your children. Engage with them. If you miss the mark, admit to them that you were wrong and apologize to them and admit to them that we are broken people. We don't have it together and um, that we need God. Uh, I remember one conversation I had with Caleb, uh, who's our oldest. Uh, I think he was around five. I had a, a challenging conversation with him, and it went sideways. And uh, I got upset and responded in anger. And you know when the Holy Spirit lives in you, he'll challenge you after you have missed the mark, right? And I was in shame, my tendency is to hide and shame, and, and I thought, no. So I went to him and I said, Caleb, I'm sorry. And he's like, it's okay, mom, it's okay. And I said, no, Caleb, nobody should treat you the way I treated you. Nobody should. And please forgive me for treating you like that. And it's interesting, he immediately, there was this glint in his eye, and he turned around and he says to me, I forgive you, mom. And I couldn't believe it because how quickly he forgave me. Here I treated him so negatively. And I said to him, Caleb, why would you forgive me? And you know what he said? He put his arms up and he said, oh, mom, because I love you. And you know, I hugged him. And you know, in my head, I know that God forgives me because he loves me. I know that in my head. But that day when I gave him that hug, he gave me that hug, I knew in my heart, God forgives me 
because he loves me. <laughs> yeah. We have special effects here in the church now. Yeah. I think family is the primary place of spiritual formation, a primary place where we grow, a primary place where we learn intimacy and where we practice forgiveness. It's a primary place where we learn that we are broken, we are flawed people. And the family is a great context to experience the gospel of Jesus. Here's, uh, here's my uh, takeaway from Angel's relationship with the boys, those engaging and, and sometimes challenging conversations that, I, you know what, you'd think they could lead to disconnection, and yet I've seen them and observed them leading to connection and actually intimacy. And, and I'll just tell you folks, it, it's, a, it's a truth relationally that, that if you don't ever deal with the hard stuff, you'll actually keep each other at arm's length. You actually have to deal with the hard stuff. It's been amazing how God has used conflict in our marriage to actually grow us and, and, and grow us closer. I know, I know it can go the other way, but we're, we're believers, right? We have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always wants to bring you back together again. He always wants to draw you back. And so as you're listening to his leadership in your life, but um, for, for me, I, I can easily be a bit of a hard conversation avoider. And uh, Angel's taught me a lot in this area, and, and I want to encourage you and challenge you. Like, 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 I appreciate. In our household, because of her, I would say we're more likely to have conversations that matter. Because myself and my two sons, we'd, we'd settle for talking about the late, latest Marvel movie till the cows came home. And uh, mother here will say, and what about this and she'll want to talk about our hearts and our souls and I challenge us in, in our family context especially in our small groups let's make sure we talk about things that matter uh, it, Devin would be the first to admit he's tempted to avoid this challenging conversation but I'm so glad he was the one who uh, did the sex talks with our boys I'm so glad he didn't leave it for someone like me or the school, or the church to do the conversation. Yeah, I, it was uh, both fun and uncomfortable to have those conversations. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm so grateful. I feel privileged to have had that opportunity to have be that voice for my boys. I, I, uh, when I was growing up, uh, when I was about 11 and a half, I found a, bed, a book that was called Almost 12, written by James, Dobbs, James Dobson, left it on my bed. My parents didn't even tell me to read it. They just left it there for me. And it was basically, you know, uh, focus on the family's version of a sex talk uh, for me. And, and uh, I, I, folks, it's uh, easy in our day to farm out all kinds of things. But some of these, like, key and core conversations, you can't farm out. You can't delegate it to, to the schools. You can't delegate it to the church. You can't delegate it to the youth pastor. Uh, the primary discipleship of our kids needs to be us. They, they need to hear your voice. They need to hear you. Quick, quick tip on this, by the way, just in terms of these kind of conversations. Uh, and, and actually, it was a series of conversations. You have one when they're like seven, and you have one when they're nine, and you have one when they're 10 and, and 11, and you just kind of do that. Um, my, my 
genius tip was never to do it like face to face across <laughs> a table. You, you drive somewhere. Well, I, I, you know, part of se sex talk number one, I think, happened on the way to school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm driving and I'm not looking at their reaction, right? <laughs> and uh, sex number two or three, I think, happened while we were on long walks together and just uh, where we're not looking eye to eye, we're side by side. And I think that can be a healthy way to relate in those ways. Especially awkward conversation. And, and by the way, in terms of guidance uh, of our kids, we found, even, even this weekend we experienced it, uh, our kids are, our, our boys are almost 20 and almost 22. <laughs> they still need our voice in their lives. Mm -hmm. They still need our guidance. It's a different kind of guidance. It's more persuasive, it's more mm -hmm. uh, coming alongside, but they still need to, need to and, and you who are that age, you know it, you want it, whether you, whether you know you need it or not. I think you want it. So, uh, first thought uh, sort of we tackled was the, the value of challenging or engaging conversations. Uh, I think some of you need to take that and, and ponder that some more and actually practice it. Another topic Angel and I get asked a lot about is, is marriage. Um, I like this quote that I came across recently. <laughs> Honey, I love you more than coffee, but just not before coffee. <laughs> That kind of resembles my life a little bit, eh, hon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we talk together about our marriage quite a bit because it has the potential, our marriage has the potential of being the most life-giving and strengthening and, and encouraging and holiness-shaping relationship in our lives. But it also has the potential of being the most discouraging and frustrating and hurtful of relationships. And we've been in both those places many, many times. When it's, when it's going well, it's brilliant. And, and when it's not going well, it can be really, really tough. When, when I, I'm performing a wedding, um, I'll often uh, do a little message in the service, and I'll sometimes point the, the people uh, to the, the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon. Great little book, very passionate, love-themed love book, the only probably PG-13 book in the Bible. Um, Quick confession, we had this amazing date uh, when we were engaged uh, where I quoted these romantic passages from the Song of Solomon. And I quoted, dark am I, yet lovely, from Song of Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> she still quotes that to me all the time. Dark am I, but yet lovely. White am I, but I don't know. <sighs> I do love uh, the images that you find in that, in that book, and, and, and the images are really about how two individuals can, can love each other well. One image uh, that in, in, the, in the whole kind of theme of, of Song of Solomon, it likens loving to taking care of a vineyard. And, and the idea of, of carefully and patiently and very intentionally grooming and nurturing your relationship. You know, like you would if you were a gardener, you know, caring for a garden that you love. Wanting it to, to bear fruit, wanting it to, to grow and flourish. And gardening takes time. I like to think of this as investing in your marriage. Uh, I am an accountant. I work in the financial world, so I think of it as investment. Uh, it's funny, uh, one of the guys I work with, he's a very senior leader, and uh, he was expecting his first baby. Uh, so I was having this conversation, and I said to him, you know, this is a very good time for you to invest in your marriage. And he looked at me and he said, I've never heard that before, Angel. 
And, uh, you know, he's a, a very well-qualified, highly educated guy. He makes sound financial investments. He makes investments in his career, his professional development, in his holidays. He does all these research, spends time where he's going to go. He works out so that the stress is limited in his life. And he says to me, Angel, I've never heard about investing in marriage. And I told him, you know, marriage is the best investment you've got. Uh, if you want to get the best dividends, you want to keep investing in marriage. Uh, you know, then I talked about making deposits. When you have young children, you make lots of withdrawals from your marriage because you don't have time, you're emotionally tired, and you just want to make sure you are adding into making deposits so that when you make withdrawals, especially in those seasons, you are not in overdraft. Some of the investments that we've sought to make, and, and uh, we've done this, just confession time here, quite imperfectly, okay? But uh, we still date. You know, we've never stopped dating. And th this, is, this is easier said than done. When we were first together, when we met at university, we couldn't not date. We, passions were hot, and we loved spending every available moment together. So you didn't have to go, what night this week is going to be date night? Every night was date night, right? That's, things changed, though, when, when we got married. I, I don't know about you, but I think this is a pattern, is that the romance fires kind of settle. And, and over time, other things crop up that, that dominate your life and, and take over, it seems like. And, and so we got, I've gotten to the place now where we actually have to plan dates. We actually have to sit down and say, when are we going to fit in uh, some time for just the two of us, marriage time and all those kind of things. We aim uh, for once a week, but for us, uh, if it doesn't happen that often, it, it just, life goes better when it does. When we are at our best, we are also very intentional about having fun together. You might think because, you know, the way we are, it happens naturally, but our lives are full. We get stressed, we get burdened, and we get serious. I know some of you think it's a picnic to be married to Derwin. <laughs> it's more like a carnival, I think. <laughs> but yeah, it is like a carnival. <laughs> but one of the first things that seem to go when we are stressed is fun. I really think we need to laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves way too seriously. Uh, one of my favorite things to do uh, with Derwin is to uh, go to Stanley Park and go on a tandem bike around, the, around Stanley Park. I always tell him when I go, it's like marriage, Derwin. You need to communicate. If we want to go somewhere, you need to communicate. Otherwise, we are just going to stand here because he needs to tell me I'm taking left, I'm taking right. Like You need to communicate, otherwise you're not going to go anywhere. Um, just want to say, depending on the season you're in, dates is going to require creativity and intentionality. So if you, are, if you have very young children, um, childcare is very expensive. I know that. Uh, maybe do childcare swapping with another couple so that you can go on dates. Uh, otherwise, if you are spending money on childcare, Make your dates less costly. I know when we used to go out, we would share one dish, or we, go, we would go for a walk 
in um, Stanley Park or uh, what's this park here? Mundy Park. And um, so be creative, but be intentional. We uh, sometimes get feedback from couples that say it's just too costly to date. And uh, my, my retort to that would be, I think it's too costly not to. You know, folks, you pay the cost one way or the other. And uh, I think uh, the sacrificial idea of putting that, your, your partner first, uh, is really worth the cost. Um, other deposits that we do, I mean, we talked about dating and fun. I'd say we try to do daily check-ins. Uh, we try to foster regular sexual intimacy. Uh, we occasionally go to counseling. Uh, Angel and I have, have hit pinch points in our marriage where we go, we need somebody to navigate, help us navigate this. We need kind of wisdom from outside. We're on this particular issue, not making any ground. So, so going and getting a professional's input has been really helpful for us. Um, we read books to, together on marriage and uh, occasionally get away to someplace like Barnabas uh, that has marriage weekends, and, and those are really, really uh, helpful. Another powerful image uh, from Song of Solomon is, the poet says, uh, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. The poet is saying, watch out for foxes. Be aware. Fight against those things that can ruin love. Uh, Dervin spoke at a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and uh, all kinds of people after that came and talked to us about their foxes that were hurting their relationship. By the way, these foxes can, can ruin any relationship, actually. So just, just in terms of your thinking... Um, but I'll often talk about foxes like uh, self-centeredness or unforgiveness. Those really work against a healthy relationship. The one that I probably uh, is, am, am most convicted by is that of busyness or maybe being distracted or not very present. Um, I've often quoted to you Eugene Peterson's words, uh, busy people rarely give themselves to the people they love. Um, this is probably one of the biggest relational issues of our day, I think. Work is hard. Uh, it's expensive to live here. Um, I, I'd say technology has, has taken storm in our lives. I mean, this is my biggest issue right here. Um, and, and, and for Angel and I, we, we've had to discuss this lots. And I find myself being defensive because I like my little gadget. Um, it's, it's sometimes a little idle in my life, my little pocket idol. Um, and so uh, on days off now, I actually uh, put my phone away. And I, I'm trying to learn when I come home at the evening to put the phone aside. And, and so it makes me a little less accessible, but I think it also makes me a little less on all the time. Little less, I, I'm able to disengage from my work life and actually be present in my relationships. And so uh, if you haven't thought about a strategy for how you're handling technology in your life, I'm talking about any kind of screen that you have, uh, both for you and for the people you love. This is for single people, ev everybody. Uh, think about it and, and develop a strategy so it does not rule your life. It, it's a, an important issue in our day. We, in fact, have even challenged our boys to fast from their phones and on their days off. Okay, final thing. I know you love that word, don't you guys? That, that we're thinking about and, and observed as kind of an issue in our, our day in relation to uh, sort of our parenting and family life. When I was a kid, when I was really young, it was, I think, way more common in our culture, I, I believe, to have sort of adult-centered families. 
Um, it, it was even common to have the idea that children were not to be seen, they were to be seen and not heard, right? Anyone kind of remember that sort of cultural value at the, back 40, 50 years ago? We've come a long way, gratefully, from there. I mean, I, I love the, the value of children in our lives today. But the pendulum seems to have swung what some say to the other end of the spectrum to what you might call child-centered families. Uh, for example, I was counseling a man recently about his troubled marriage. And he confessed to me that really, since they, him and his wife had kids, it's like they put their marriage relationship on hold. It's like they set it to the side. The health of their kids, the, the activities that their kids were involved in, the, uh, the kids' future, all of those things had become kind of the ultimate priority. And, and they decided that, that without, without ever, ever even talking about it, that, that their relationship as a couple could somehow coast through the child-rearing years, that they didn't need to invest in their marriage. And we unpacked it, and I challenged this dad and said, you want healthy kids. One of the things they need is a thriving relationship between their parents. That's maybe one of the better gifts you can give them as, as parents. So adult-centered family or child-centered family, neither extremes work. I think we need a new paradigm. I think Jesus would propose a kingdom-centered family. Uh, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And if you read the context where Jesus says that, it's talking about the context of everyday life, uh, everyday relationships, money, food, what you eat, what you wear, the future, everyday worries. And Jesus didn't say, seek first your family, even though family is really, really good things. He didn't say, seek first a relationship, a marriage, or even happiness. He didn't say that, seek first happiness. But Jesus did say, put God first, put my kingdom, and I'll take care of the rest. God, uh, God spoke quite personally to us about this this summer. We had a financial decision that we were making, and uh, we sensed God asking something sacrificial from us. But we've also been in a season where both our boys are in post-secondary university uh, and, and going to school, and we've been doing budgeting with them and adding up the numbers, and the numbers are really, really large these days to go to school, right? Both of them are going away from home. And Angel and I were both feeling like we would like to do more to actually contribute to our boys' education. But at the same time, we felt God calling us to this sacrificial, sacrificial generosity in this other area of our life. And there seemed to be a conflict there, you know, sowing into our kingdom. Our boys are sowing into God's kingdom. And so we're really feeling torn. And, and both the Angel and I were praying for it for about a week. And... Uh, both of us had God sort of independent of each other speak the same thing to us. God, God said something like this. He said, you take care of mine, I'll take care of yours. You take care of mine. You take care of my kingdom. You, you put that first in your life, and, and I'll take care of yours. And you know what, folks? I, I don't know if you've ever never heard God speak a word to you. Maybe you don't know what this is like. But God said to us, I'll take care of yours. I'll take care of your kids. You, you can put me first and trust me with your kids. You, 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 don't, you, you, you can do that. And uh, I, I sense, to be honest, I, I've had this sense that that's a promise I can take to the bank. 
And, and, and to be honest, folks, we sense this is a promise that God is making to, to you. Felt it was a word for us this morning, for, for this congregation. Put me first. Seek my kingdom. Take care of mine. And I'll take care of yours. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it. Practically speaking, this means choosing priorities around practical things like finances, like career choices, um, like holidays. I remember a friend of ours uh, who chose a lower-paid job, lower-paying job, for the sake of his kids. It's me. It means being intentional about having schedules that include corporate worship, like coming to church on Sunday. It's going to mean prioritizing your own walk with Jesus. Uh, it's also about not, not over-scheduling your life or your family so that there's no, no room for God or no room for God for your children either. Uh, you know, you have heard us talk about, even before, about Stephen Covey's uh, Big Rocks. It's a, it's, it's a container, and um, like that picture is, and uh, you put the big rocks first, then you can put the pebbles, the sand, and the water. But if you choose to put the pebbles or the sand first, there is no way you would fit those big rocks in that container. The big rocks are relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with your significant other, relationship with your family. The pebbles, the sand, and water are your work, your hobbies, your career, your holidays, your home. So God says, you take care of mine and I'll take care of what's important to you. All right, just want to wrap up. If, if, uh, I think if we're honest here this morning, folks, family and relationships just in general are that place where most of us feel the most inadequate in our lives, right? We feel most tested, uh, even in terms of our faith, uh, most in need of help. And, and knowing this, how, how messy and how noisy and how challenging family and marriage and friendships and and simply being in community can be, how challenging that can be, we need to, to discover the power of God that he provides for our relationship. Jesus wants to help us make things right relationally. He wants to meet us there. He doesn't leave us to ourselves to kind of pull this off. Uh, this is a journey where Jesus wants to guide us. And, and, and I actually, I think the word that was shared last week uh, uh, someone shared a scripture where we talked about God's the God who can raise the dead. You know, he, can, he can create something out of nothing. And I, I wonder this morning, some of you might feel a, a bit discouraged about some of your relationships. or Maybe you feel some regrets about a relationship or how you've parented or not parented. Uh, how, how you've been in a marriage and maybe that, that broke. And we just acknowledge that, that this is a painful topic. And this is where we, we bring our lives, our actual real lives, our relational mm -hmm. selves to God. And we invite him into the middle of it all. And uh, we ask for his healing and his hope. Um, and, and the sense is that anything is possible with God. And so if you're in a, in a relationship that's really strained right now, I want you to know anything is possible with him. 
God can, God can transform that, that, that relationship. Mm-hmm. He can bring hope where there's no hope. And so I uh, want you to know, too, that we're, we're not alone. This is part of why we do this as a church, why we're a community together, is we want to help each other grow in this area, too. We want to push each other to, to be in small groups so that actually we'll learn how to relate better to one another and, and to treat each other well, but we'll also be supportive to one another in this journey. I'm going to invite, actually, I don't think we're going to take time for a closing song this morning. Why don't, Angel, would you mm-hmm. close us in prayer? Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, Lord. Uh, You are a relational God. Father, that you, in you, Father, we find love, joy, peace, kindness. So, Father, we come as uh, little boys and girls before our Father today. Father, I thank you, Lord, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So, Father, we bring our families, our relationships to you. Father, I thank you, Lord, that uh, you are our firm foundation. Father, in you, we can build our life together. Father, I thank you, Lord, that in you, Father, you make the crooked path straight. Father, I know some of us look back and there's so many regrets in our lives and uh, things we have done it wrong, things that has gone sideways and broken relationships. Father, I pray, Lord, would you make the crooked path straight. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are the redeemer. You redeem, Father. Father, uh, you can bring beauty out of ashes gladness out of mourning. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who picks us up from the slimy pit and you put us on the rock that is you, Jesus. Oh, Father, we ask, Lord, we open our lives to you and we say, Father, bring peace into our lives, real peace, Father. And Father, would you speak real hope, Father, where there is darkness and chaos that reign. Father, would you speak life and light over those places, Father. Father, redeem our relationships. Redeem our friendships. Father, we pray, Lord, would you redeem our family relationships. Father, pour into our lives your goodness, your kindness. We thank you, Lord, with you, all things are possible. Father, with you, even the crooked path can be made straight. We thank you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me just add this uh, word of benediction to you. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.